Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, where we discuss practical science and not-so-common sense to live a life more extraordinary. On this episode, we hold space for Rachel's origin story with undertones of strength and courage, not only in the workplace and when developing new-to-world technology, but also in her private life. So, let's get started. Here are your co-hosts, who are also partners in life and in business, Luke and Rachel. Welcome to episode two of the Tainted Life mm. podcast. And now to one of my favorite topics. <laughs> you. <laughs> um, a topic that I know you find extremely uncomfortable, but I endlessly enjoy. Uh, however, the biggest challenge is trying to consolidate everything you've done into such a succinct introduction. So I've got my notes here just to make sure I don't miss anything. Uh, even then, I still haven't got half the things that you really do. So with uh, such a diverse eclectic background from New Zealand gymnast, uh, geneticist, toxicologist, a scientist in the lab, global sales, wearables, health tech, AI, GPU acceleration, um, chief product officer for a multinational company in the security space, plus serving on government and private boards, um, all the way through to running tailored health and tailored technologies with me. It's fair to say I count myself as the luckiest man alive um, to be able to lean on that diverse skill set and knowledge. Although you have an extremely wide-ranging and eclectic background, it tells a story, and that's the story that I want to unpack today uh, because it all coalesces into a beautiful story um, as we start to put these pieces of the puzzle together. And it's a frustration with the system and a belief that life should not be this lonely, confusing, or frustrating. So where to start? Uh, this is something I contemplated quite a bit of where should we start on your journey? Do we start back as childhood or should we start at where, where you are now? But I think the best place for us to start is where we first met because that was in a point of unbecoming, a point of um, rebirthing. Um, yeah, so I'd like you to uh, take the lead into where we first met and how and why and what happened after that? Well, firstly, thank you for that introduction. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying not to squirm in my chair because it tends to make me feel quite uncomfortable generally, but I do appreciate the thought you put into all of that. And uh, it's weird being on the other end of this mm. where it's the, so the focus is turned towards me, which is not my favorite topic, but thank you very much for holding but space it's fine, for this. So, so yeah. we're good. <laughs> I'm glad we're only doing one of these. Uh, so where we met, yeah, I think unbecoming or a, a master unraveling. I mentioned sort of an unraveling in the first podcast when when we met. Uh, and that certainly is a great summary of, of what was happening in my life at the time. Uh, one of our mutual friends, Robert Hollis, uh, he decided that he wanted to get a whole bunch of just total weapons together, people who are hyper-achievers in business, in, um, in athletic endeavours, in any, anywhere in between, and bring them all together in Queenstown and have this amazing weekend of just connection and learning and upskilling and growing. I'll, I'll fast forward a bit. So we got up to Auckland, um, flew down to Queenstown, and then there were just dapples of engagement uh, throughout the course of the weekend and I didn't really fully engage with you until I guess the second day after you'd spoken and I'd already spoken the previous day um, about AI and ethics and so it wasn't until we kind of started engaging that that second day that I really enjoyed your company and there was a little bit of magic there but uh, a week prior I actually decided that it was time to separate from my ex-husband so for me, I was not in a place of even thinking about romantic relationships, any kind of chemistry that I had with anybody else, uh, and I was just really protecting myself in that space. And so friendship was something I was quite keen to explore, but I think very early on we established there was quite a lot of chemistry there too. But uh, what amounted from there was uh, a beautiful friendship that happened for around five months thereafter. and. Wait, wait, so we're not friends anymore? <laughs> we are friends, yes, and continues to this day. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. And uh, and so that's really how we met, but what was 
beautiful around that relationship is very early on we were both aligned around areas of health and performance. So we both came from a national athletic background. We both came from kind of an underdog story, so to speak, around being, you know, you had to train harder or different or work smarter than perhaps everyone else. And so we, I think there was a lot of alignment in our journeys and how that coalesced to where we are today. And so uh, suffice it to say, during that period, uh, I ended up resigning from my job as well. Uh, that is a completely different topic around um, very toxic workplace, uh, being working predominantly in the tech startup space, which is heavy in, in men um, and egos that often come from that too. And that's when I had started to consider accepting a new role as chief product officer for a, a multinational company in New Zealand. And at the time, I was still keen to figure out what was going on with my health and how I was healing from this sort of untangling of myself from this relationship prior. And uh, I actually proposed to you and negotiated with my new job to put a $10,000 stipend for my health because ultimately I just wanted to become the most amazing version of myself and the best leader I could be in this new C-suite role. I finally kind of got the so-called corner office and the big title, and I just wanted to be the best version of myself. And so with the world the, the world you were in, in having a health clinic and being the space of human performance and our new friendship and aligned kind of vision and thoughts about the future, I just came to you and I challenged you. I said, if I, if I negotiate $10,000, can you or can we create a program that helps me become the leader I was born to be and the human optimization engine, like get that lit up. And so that's, that's where that interesting journey began to combine pleasure and work together and, and our growing friendship. Yeah, that's absolutely where the fun started and we had to really start unraveling um, and kind of rediscovering, you know, who is Rachel? Mm. Um, because, you know, you've kind of alluded to a bit of that in your Unmasked um, series. Um, mm. So if for those that don't know, there's a series on LinkedIn um, around your Unmasked executive, um, which is you kind of dropping out of all those things, all those unbecomings. Um, but again, those aren't finished as well because, no. you know, life got busy. Um, we never, you never got around to finishing those. So I'm really looking forward to double tapping into a few of those areas today. But <clears throat> coming back to that point in time, you know, so you got the step in for, um, for, the, for that role and to optimize your health to be the best person you could be. Why? Why would, why would like, obviously you want to be the best person you could be, but why in, why in health? Why mm. um, not anywhere else? Like you, there's plenty of ways in which you can um, double tap into, but why, why health? Mm. So my, my early days have been in life science. So quite form, formational, uh, very early on, I've been interested in life science and health. And I'd already been quite health conscious up to that point. But I also realized that I was having worsening issues, worsening conditions. Mm. So my stomach started to, I started to be in so much pain. Um, and with my stomach, just, I could not stomach food at all. So what was interesting about that unbecoming and as soon as I separated from my ex-husband is I threw myself into exercise. I was running every second day, five kilometers. I think it's about three miles a day or at least every second day, sometimes twice in a day. I was doing resistance training every other day. I couldn't eat. Like I just, I would eat things and I try to eat really healthfully because I wanted to make sure that while I couldn't control anything that was unraveling in my emotional life, you know, having two kids, separating a life, you know, of sort of 12, 13 years together, uh, house, all that stuff that you have when you make that decision, I had to control the things I could control, hmm. which meant exercise, food, any kind of um, lever that could be controlled that I had prediction over, I, I just, I leaned into. And a lot of that was around health. But as a result, there was quite an unhealthy, later I realized unhealthy 
stress management that I was doing through those movement things, um, which my body told me that's not what I needed very quickly um, after I just couldn't couldn't stand stomach eating. And so I lost a lot of weight. I lost about probably five to 10 kilos on a frame I probably shouldn't have lost um, in the middle of traveling to the US, traveling around the world. Uh, I was, I basically just became a bit of a mess. And so that's where I realized in the transition to the new role, something was wrong. I needed help. Yeah. And I, cause you're always quick to brush over things like of the significance of things. So I just want to go back to the stomach pain. I want you to describe that a little bit more. So, mm. Um, because I recall that as being extremely debilitating for you. Uh, not only were you not eating, but uh, like dive into a bit more about mm. that. So when I ate, it just sat like a rock in my stomach. Like I, it just, it just like it didn't want to move. And so not only could I not eat a lot, but I didn't eat often because it just sat there and it literally felt like I was close to throwing up. So for that period, again, not only was I probably burning an extra 500, 600 calories a day, I was probably under eating about a thousand just because I couldn't, I couldn't get anything in. And, um, I just, I remember as I started to reintroduce food, so there was a bit of a gap between the pain and in that place. So I can probably double tap into that because <clears throat> it makes sense. So at that time when I wasn't eating, that's when I met you and our relationship started to, um, you know, advance. And you invited me to a breathwork event. It was a full day thing. There was a breathwork activity in the morning around intergenerational viruses. And there was an ice bath plunge. And then there was a, a follow-on breathwork activity afterwards. And this was after about two months of you know, post-separation. So two months post-separation, I was leaning into exercise. I wasn't eating. I lost a whole bunch of weight. And then you invited me to this breath work. And I also think prior to that point, well, I think I just got you on an aura ring as well. You right? had, yes, yeah. absolutely. So aura ring. So we're just starting to get some data coming through, telling us a few things and uh, starting to uncover those insights. Yes. Yeah. And so in the breath work, I had some crazy, incredible visions. Um, I'm not going to double tap into that right now because I think that's a whole episode of breath work and the impact that it can, it can infer to, to people's health journey. But essentially, what we can what we can say now is that that untapped it or um, released a dam for me. So from a from a nervous system tension perspective that I'd been carrying for years and years and years, and then more acutely the last sort of two months, it kind of just released a dam. And from a nervous system dysregulation perspective, it finally let my stomach release. So. After that day, I was ravenous. Like I was just so hungry and I couldn't put enough food in my belly. Like, I, I mean, I couldn't eat too much because it had shrunk so much, but it was like night and day, that experience of being in so much blockage, so to speak, and then that breath work event. And then finally having such a nervous system release was profound. And so after I started to reintroduce foods again, that's when I started getting the stomach pain. So it was really high up in my in my stomach, and it was so bad that I literally I ha I couldn't stand. Like I had to lie down, and it was largely and, and we're going to talk about real stuff here. It was just gas build up. Like um, I don't know how I could have possibly been producing that much gas. I, it was like I became a rocket ship, and um, and just that much distension of my stomachs, almost near my my stomach, and then my intestines it just created so much debilitation. And so I, I didn't understand what was going on. I was in tears at times when you weren't around. I just was just so painful. I'm getting quite emotional now, but, um, and I don't know what to do. I, I remember a time when we were at a friend's place and you literally had to floor yourself out on the ground, lie on your back while we we're all kept talking and mm. you know, technically you're okay, obviously, but, um, but you're in so much pain. You couldn't even be sitting. Mm. Um, you had to be lying down because you're just in that much pain um and I, th I think that's important for people to understand because you you're so quick to brush things over and this is kind of where i want to unpack these little things today um to show you know although you look perfect on the outside it's all these little things on the outside that you've had to overcome and um yeah and the amount of things you've achieved 
with all these challenges as well. So I, I want to, we're going to come back to this point in time because obviously we, we, this is really where we left off and kind of built into where we are now. But what I want to come back to is the early years. Um, so I, I want to dive into you being a gymnast because mm. this is something that not many people know about you. So you're a gymnast that represented New Zealand. Um, so not just any gymnast, you know, you weren't doing it for fun. You were at a very competitive level, but um, it wasn't just that. It was, you know, you had every, everything against you. All the other gymnasts, I believe, were um, had all the amazing equipment, amazing gym setups, and you were just doing it out of a church. Um, so I'd love to understand what were the lessons you learned in your gymnast career. And mm. what part of um, gymnast, what, what type of gymnast were you? Mm. So, yeah, I started as a gymnast when I was seven. So relatively late in the span of things. But uh, I think my mom, I just had a lot of energy and clearly had some type of drive and initiative around um, my, my body and, and how I like to, to use it. And I spent a lot of time on the trampoline as a, as a young person. So I think it was probably a logical next step. And so I started as a gymnast at seven <clears throat> and very quickly uh, joined a competitive group. So I remember the day that I was trying to impress my to-be coach uh, to make, you know, to see that I was worth worthy of having, you know, to join his team. And so it was out of a little church in Ridout Street, uh, it was called Turn In Gymnastic Circle. They still exist um, as a club today. And Gary was was my was my coach. And uh, yeah, very quickly I just took up to the sport. And I was a I was an artistic gymnast. So that means beam, um, asymmetric bar, um, vault floor. And in the church we had a little runway, which was just the ability to do tumbling. Uh, I just remember these old school springs. I, mean, I don't even think it was a professional setup. We had other equipment that was, you know, professional um, beams and bars and things like that. But it was just this little tiny place that that I trained out of. And it didn't become an issue until I was probably two years before retirement. So I was at level 10, which is the highest you can go to before you get into sub-junior elite um, Commonwealth elite in, in Olympics. And, uh, and so by that point in time, you're doing some pretty hardcore moves, like amazing releases on the bars, uh, you know, double somersaults, twists on the floor, some pretty cool things on the beam. Like, you know, you're getting into the, the high, high difficulty moves. And I qualified for the New Zealand team when I was 15. So we went to Australia and represented New Zealand there. I was kind of the, the, the person who was always towards the very end of the selection. So you always had the Aucklanders and the, the major city gymnasts at the very, very top of these qualifying competitions. And it wasn't just one qualifying competition. There was a number of them that you kind of had to get a certain number of total score to kind of be ranked. And so I was often kind of the underdog, this girl from Hamilton out of a out of a out of a church. Mm. And so I was so excited to be chosen for the New Zealand team that year. And uh, it was just awesome to be able to train with the national coach. So the New Zealand coach, she just had a completely different perspective of prestige and finishing and I mean, that was just an eye-opener to how a not only a female coach, because I had a male coach, of course, is going to be about tricks and so capable of, of, of spotting you and making sure that you're safe. And so I'd be doing all the hard tricks, but the, the finishing wouldn't be poised um, like you'd expect from a gymnast at a high level. It was pretty darn good. But when I started to train with a New Zealand female coach, it kind of took it to a whole new level. And so um, that was the, the first year representing New Zealand. The second year, um, I represented New Zealand in Hong Kong. And um, what became pretty apparent to me at that point in time is if you have the right coach, if they have the right attention to detail, even a young gymnast from a church can beat all the Aucklanders. And that became so apparent to me when I won silver on bars because the person who came first was a, a sub-elite sub gymnast. So she was put in last minute to come to Hong Kong with us 
she was Commonwealth level. She came first on bar, I came second. And so when I reflect upon with the right tools, with the right coaching, with the right attitude towards human potential and optimization, you can be limitless, you can be unbeatable. And so when I reflect upon that as, as an adult now, I think that not only feeds into our why, you know, that the path to vibrant well-being shouldn't be confusing or lonely, but counter to that, that the path to unlocking your potential and what you can become shouldn't be this mystified. Like, there has to be a way to educate more people on how to become who they're born to be. And so that kind of was the undercurrent to everything else thereafter and was the reason why I really wanted some help to become the leader I wanted to be as a chief product officer. Yeah, because I, I recall you telling me, because um, after your gymnast career, you kind of went into judging and it was in the judging where you just couldn't take it anymore because you were watching this talent just not being served mm. and watching not being served in a bad way as well. So like injuries and having to push through things that when they, if they were just nurtured in that right way, they had so much untapped potential. Mm. Um, but at that point in time, that was not your path. Um, I couldn't stand judging these girls, yeah. not only when they were largely held back by just lack of knowledge. Um, and, but equally being at the, at the bottom of the cliff, by the time you're judging them, all of the work's being done or not done. So you're only seeing five to two to five percent of what they do in a in a year, mm. um, and then you're judging them for it. And so it just was like, oh my god, I can't keep doing this when I can't influence the remaining ninety five percent. Okay, so with that knowledge you have now, so since then, obviously, there's been a hell of a journey, kind of really unpacking and understanding what are the levers that you can really push and pull. From your journey specifically, what is the one thing you wish you knew uh, when you were back at gym? Well, I, to be frank, I'd be running Mini Auto, which is our, our executive program now. Um, I'd be looking at genetics. I'd be looking at gut health. I'd be looking at um, their exhaust. So as from a performance perspective, how is their body metabolizing what they're eating, what they're doing, how they're navigating that fine line like we talked about last episode with like performance and recovery. So where is that line and how do we help people ride it well? But I think nutrition would have been huge. Yeah, so uh, that's a low barrier entry, right? It it's is, something that yeah. anyone and everyone can do. Sleep and nutrition. Uh, like I was in a lot of pain often and I was on a lot of painkillers. Voltaren, uh, which was a type of anti-inflammatory sort of painkiller for way longer than even the packet says, just because we weren't informed by the doctor. And so that would have ruined my gut health at the time. Um, I actually found out after I finished and came back from Hong Kong when I got blood tests that I was like largely anemic. So I think out of 20 micro mole per liter or whatever the, the um, unit is, I was like six, four or six. So 20 is the minimum to be you know, clinically healthy around the ferritin. Oh, it used to be, I think, 28 or 30, but they just dropped that number down. Which is ridiculous because, yeah. well, again, it's, it's all based on human reference standards, which don't mean that it's good for you, but it's good for a large statistical population. So there's a whole bunch of things I learned from that. And, and this is not to point fingers at my, my parents because my mom was a huge supporter of me. She was there at competitions. She was there often at training. She had three other children to take care of. And I was the youngest. She worked part-time. But um, And I know when I've spoken to her about this, she regrets not, not making different decisions. But my older brothers would often eat what was left over. So mum would leave food over from what she's, she'd cooked the night because we'd train three to four times a week from six to nine. Um, so... I'd miss dinner and mum would leave food out for me, which would be good food. But often my brothers would just eat it. And so I'd, I'd be picked up from gymnastics and mum would say, oh, I'm sorry, there's no food for you. And so we'd stop by McDonald's and I'd have two cheeseburgers, some fries and a Diet Coke. And while that is like the child's dream, like, oh my gosh, our kids... <coughs> If you if you if you gave that option to our kids that oh, yeah. two to three days a week yeah. you're getting McDonald's, 
they would be like heaven. And don't get me wrong, at the time I was like, oh my gosh, yes. Like I was exactly the same. Yeah. Like, yeah. But but reflecting upon it, that was the worst thing to be giving a 13, 14, 15 year old mm. child that was burning God knows how many calories and was trying to compete at an international level. Like, no wonder I was dragging myself around during during puberty. Like my I was already stunted. My puberty had already been stunted up until then. But dragging myself around that last year because I just had no energy. Yeah, and I think this is where a lot of commonalities come between our story, but I don't think just us, I think many kids in general that especially sporty kids, um, you know, because parents are time poor, they're running the kids around any sporty kid, they're running the kids around twenty four seven, it must feel like. Um and you just have to find food for the kids. So it's, again, nothing against the parents. I can't believe how much my mum followed me right now that I'm <laughs> a parent. I'm like, <laughs> that was a whole new level. Yes. Um, but, yeah, that, that obviously creates a whole bunch of health issues, you know, both with the anti, high use of anti-inflammatories, which, again, parents are trying to help. The knowledge we knew then, that mm. was what you're supposed to do. Um, but especially on a developing gut, plus with a bad diet, it's it's a recipe for disaster, and I know for you, um, I want to kind of tap into another struggle that I know that you really had, and it's probably the struggle that I think you find the most frustrating and debilitating, and it's something that I think a lot of people identify with, um, which is acne. Mm. So you've had a lot of skin trouble right throughout from a young age, and I'd, I'd love to kind of hear about that from you. Mm. So as I mentioned, my puberty was delayed. So I didn't get my period until like a week before my 16th birthday. And and that's probably because we well, obviously we don't know for a fact, but being anemic, um, you're going to slow down all bodily processes. Mm. Um, and having that, like I had such little body fat. I was basically just a, a skeletal muscle mix. Yeah. And I just, you there's photos of her having like a ripped six pack. I really did. And it was funny. I actually had some of the male gymnasts. Uh, we went, we, every year there's like a party for all the gymnasts at the, at the end of the year. And I just remember one of the guys saying, you know, every time we see you in your leotard, Rachel, like you are ripped. And I, and my boyfriend, my boyfriend, a couple, like a year later or so, he's like, I'm super embarrassed because you've got a 12 pack. And I, I mean, I, <laughs> and I was so self-conscious about my body. Like, so like, cause that's not a normal body for yeah. a young girl is to be that lean, that mus you know, muscular. Um, and I'm, I'm very vascular. So I've got such low body fat. Um, even now for a female that, you know, my, my veins just pop. And so I'm just, I don't have a lot of body fat. And so it created a lot of negative self body image because I just felt very atypical to all the other girls that I'd seen around. And so the acne just made that worse. Hmm. So I'd had kind of pimples growing up, but it wasn't until I kind of got to about 17 that I started getting real like cystic acne. And cystic acne is, is much deeper. They don't kind of come to a head and it's largely hormonal. So it'll be in the hormonal areas, but it's also very painful. So you just, you feel it on your face. It's very, you get very self-conscious about yourself. And, and rightly or wrongly, I already had, you know, gym, gymnastics is not a classic healthy body image sport. Mm. Like you're being like physically critiqued out of 10 yeah. for your perfection. So if you want to take a perfectionist and literally put her in a sport where perfection is measured, that is a perfect sport to do, to, to, to like nurture that idea of perfection. Which I think is an undertone for everything you do. Often people will reflect upon you as that kind of high level perfectionist. And I think that's a lot down to um, that level of just patterning from such a young mm. age of you just having to perform, perform, perform at the cost of everything else. Yeah, um, but... What's funny is it's not like I it, – it's so deeply embedded that it's not like I try to. Oh, no, no. I'm not saying you're trying mm. to. It was like it's just deeply ingrained into yeah. patterning. And that, yeah. that's been like a lot of the unraveling, the unbecoming of this last yeah. uh, multiple years has been identifying that and winding that back. Oh, especially perfection as a mother. Yeah, perfection as oh, a mother. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. That was so erosive. Yeah. So erosive. And so anyway, so coming from the context of – a young person uh, who grew up in, a, in a, a pool of perfection, expectation in a sport. 
and then starting to have issues with you know the physical facade so I already felt really negative you know really negative body image then I started getting all these you know big red welts everywhere and it would just be painful and they'd hang around for so long and I just didn't know what to do I was so embarrassed um I ended up going on Roaccutane which in the U.S. is isotretinoin so uh, I went on that. It's supposed to be the cure for acne, um, but the the dermatologist kept putting me into higher and higher doses because I just wouldn't respond to the point where I started getting blood noses, and I was just like, "This is not good for my ge- like my genetics," because I know I knew that it was a you know it's a, it can affect your genes, um, and that's why they don't recommend it for people who are pregnant. And so I, I went off it, but it just like even the cure didn't work. I was just like, "I'm on these things and nothing's working." And so it just became such a point of frustration that I didn't know what to do. But it did become a crutch at one point though, right? Like where you felt like it was better than not being on it. Because I know when we kind of first met, you were still on it because it was helping mm, you just yes. kind of. Yeah. Um, so there was, you're kind of, you wanted to be away from it, but you couldn't really pull away from it. And... Yeah. Yeah. So I've been on Neurocutain twice in my life. So the first was when I was 17, 18, 19. Lots of antibiotics too. So doxycycline did really well for my skin. Um, but again, you're only prescribed it for a short period of time. And so I'd have this, finally I'd have skin that didn't have all these these this, these acne welts and cysts and things like that. And then I'd, as soon as I'd go off it, it just all would come back again. The doctor put me on um, Yasmin 35, which is a type of pill that is known to help with acne too. And that was that was, that was was good as well. I was on that for most of my, my 20s. Mm. Uh, right up until trying to have children, and so that's how I, for the most part, managed the acne there too. Uh, and then, and then I went back on Roaccutane again when I came back to New Zealand because I was off the pill. I didn't want to be on the pill because I just didn't want to lobotomize my hormones. And I thought, God, I'm like, I'm 30. I'm in mid 30s. Surely, surely acne shouldn't be bothering me anymore. So I went back to another dermatologist in New Zealand and she said that um, she was surprised that the doctor had prescribed me such a high dose of Roaccutane or isotretinoin. And so she said the trick is low dose. So sure enough, we went on low dose and it worked beautifully. Like between all of my exercise that I was doing and then low dose Roaccutane, I finally felt like my skin was in a really good place and I wasn't getting breakouts. And it was just like such a relief after 20 years oh, I don't have to feel self-conscious about covering things up because I'm not a big makeup person. I don't love makeup, but I felt like I had to wear it when I had breakouts, which of course makes it worse. So you can't win. So obviously you kind of came back on it, but as with any medication in particular, like it has downstream effects. And so what did you kind of uncover in that space? So I just hated how dry my skin was. And, and so I just had to lather things on. Um, I didn't feel like it was good for my health generally. And I didn't like that it had issues with, you know, it had indications with genetic health as well. Uh, and so I started to wean off it. And, and the, the dermatologist said that like, every couple of days or, you know, as, as you kind of see something popping up, you can take a pill and it would kind of navigate and manage that. And so when we met, I was still on that kind of maintenance dose. Uh, and I didn't love being on it, but it was what it, what kept my skin clear. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to leave that there because mm. there, that's a whole journey. And I think I'd like to unpack. I think that's a future episode of the skin stuff. But I just want to, because yeah. um, what we did after that point, well, was, that's healed my skin. So what we've done since yeah. now has healed my skin. Yeah. So we we may get into that if we have time, but I want to leave that because I think that's a full yeah. episode in itself. Um, but what I really want to get into now, which is the next fascinating part. Um, that I think will, again, blow people's minds, is your eclectic work background. So you kind of followed a a thread of um, different things, but they all kind of work to coalesce into uh, where we are now. I want to go back, because you're a a scientist by training, right? So you're a geneticist and toxicologist. Um, That's what you did your master's in. But what I want to start with, which I think is really powerful, um, if you don't mind sharing, is your master's thesis. Mm. Because, as you know, this, to me, is the perfect example or epitome of who you are as a person. And, yeah, I'll let you share that. Mm. So so I have to take you back a little bit to help understand my master's thesis. Of course. 
so first of my undergraduate was in uh, biochemistry genetics. Uh, my master's was a master's of science, uh, and I ended up specializing in analytical chemistry and forensic toxicology. I still did advanced genetics and advanced biochemistry. That was all a part of my program. Um, but the reason why I did that was the undercurrent of when I was around 14, 13, 14. So someone really close to me when I was um, quite young was sexually assaulted and there was alcohol involved, but it could have been any other drug. But either way, that person was incapacitated and um, their friend, male friend, ended up assaulting her sexually um, with her saying no you know, within that experience. And I was just, I was so, I was so heartbroken for this person. And again, what has happened now is the, the, the mother figure in this has apologized, I think, or at least has reconciled that. But the mother figure in the situation actually blamed this person for putting herself in the situation where she was sexually assaulted. And so I urged and urged and urged her to go to the police to report it, to get some degree of justice for what happened. But whether it's because she felt so much guilt herself and or because of the mother figure sort of putting that on her, she never did and she refused to. I just remember, and I, I am a big journaler my entire life, and I've still got the journal and entry that you know actually articulates how frustrated I was. Like, I'm getting upset now and I'm probably going to cry. I will. <laughs> and it's okay. But I was just so frustrated. How does... I try to compose myself. Thank you. How do you how do you reconcile as a young girl watching that happen? How do you reconcile that in your life? And it didn't even happen to me, like I'm not the one who was sexually assaulted in this. But to see to see a person to feel so help, and for me to feel so helpless, was just debilitating. I just remember being so angry. Um, and I'm the type of person that I will not sit back and watch. Like I just will not. I'm the type of person who will stick up for somebody in the playground. I will put myself in front of a bus for someone else. Like I just. I'm confident in myself to, to stick up for people. And so to see that was really formative for me um, in, my, in my life. So let me take a breath to compose myself. <laughs> but, um, but again, that kind of speaks to the, the loneliness and frustration. And, you know, it's just another point in your story which – um, coalesces to where we are now and we mm. just another point where just not being addressed and being made to feel so alone so alone like yeah. and it's 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 on you and it's uh yeah so what did you do with that because <laughs> this is where yeah. things get I, I just love this yeah so that was you know when I was 13 14 or so and so I, I kind of carried that with me for a really long time. Um, when I was in my undergrad, I started watching CSI, you know, the, the cool criminal um, series. And I just thought that's how I start to figure this out. Like that's how I start to potentially solve some big problems in the space of, for example, sexual assault Um to actually start to imprint or provide a legacy that I can be really proud of. Because of course, when you're 13, you're helpless. Like what on earth can you do at that point? And that in itself was frustrating because I always felt like I had so much more to give. Mm. Um, and, and so finally, when I did my undergrad uh, and I said, right, I'm going to get into forensic toxicology, forensic science of some sort. That was my dream. And so when I finished my, my, my bachelor's, I ended up uh, pursuing forensics and I found um, ESR is the Environmental Science of Research. That's the company in New Zealand that does pretty much all the forensic testing for the police in this country. It might have changed since then, but 
I was like, I want to do something with these guys. This is where I'm going. And so I was able to secure a, um, a work placement as a part of my thesis. So I was able to switch. Usually in the master's, you do your book work first and all of your desktop work, and then you do your thesis. But instead, I did it thesis first. So um, because of my grades, um, I was able to get a number of scholarships, uh, as well as um, a forensic scholarship. Perfectionist kind of feeding free there. <laughs> yep, yep, carry on. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, and so I was able to, I, I lived down in, in Porerua, which is a um, it's part of sort of Wellington region. Uh, and I was able to start to develop a new test that uses hair and nails to detect sedatives. So the whole purpose of this thesis was to apply to drug facilitated sexual assaults. So at the time, there was a lot of DFSAs, drug facilitated sexual assaults happening in New Zealand. So um, a female or a male um, would be roofied, they'd be drugged you know, through some type of sedative uh, in their drink during a party or at a bar, and then they'd be assaulted later. And, and so part of my thesis was to de design a new way to detect those drugs in hair and nails after the fact, because the biggest issues with DFSAs is when and I'll just assume a female. I say it could be a male, but if a female is drugged with some of these um, these drugs, um, benzodiazepines specifically, uh, you're you're so incapacitated that, and you're often incapacitated even after you come to that. By the time you realise something's happened, so you've been assaulted, there might be injury um, in the genital area, or you may remember parts of it, but don't fully can't put all the pieces together is that oftentimes these, um, these victims don't go to the police in time for them to get the blood test to see and confirm that they'd actually been drugged. And the half-lives of these particular drugs are so fast, again, that unless you get to the police, get the medical examination and get the bloods, you've got nothing in your blood to confirm that you've been drugged. And so as you can imagine, if you're a victim and you, don't, you simply don't understand what happened, and traumatized as and well. traumatized which would be easy to block things yeah. out and and don't have anything in your blood to confirm that anything happened it's incredibly confusing mm. it's like I, I i can remember someone being on me i remember i remember pushing them all i i think i pushed them away i don't know what happened i, I wouldn't have said yes and you can imagine the confusion of these young women that they've got no evidence to suggest that they've been drugged, even though they felt like something was wrong. And then when they try to feel like they need to testify or maybe they press charges, they're like, maybe it was my fault. Maybe I, dr I drunk too much alcohol, but the reality is they had something else in that concoction that knocked them out. And you sold it. Yeah. So um, what was really cool from that thesis and was then later published, I published it in the International Journal of Forensic Science, is a new methodology using hair specifically. Nails works, but is not so um, time-pointed because um, hair grows around one centimetre a month. And so if you can take a sample in the posterior vertex of the, of the head um, and you have your entire kind of longevity of the, the a bunch of hair is that you can cut it up every one centimetre more, more or less and get a drug history for as long as that hair is long. So not only was it used in sexual assault cases, but also things like custody cases where, say, you've got a parent that has had a history of drug use. They say they're clean. They now take the, the, the hair and then chunk it up into those one centimeter segments and say, I can, I can see that your last dose of Zopiclone was 10 months ago and we can confirm that it hasn't been thereafter. And that corroborates their testimony in custody cases that they're clean. Yeah. And from what from what I understand as well is, you know, that's going right up to like FBI kind of use that kind of technology now and all sorts, which is, again, once again, you're solving problems before you've even, like while you're doing your master's, you know, like you were, how old him? 19? I was, by the time that I was like 21. 21, 22. 21. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, but still 21 and you're creating technologies to help solve loneliness. Mm. So you, you can start to see the thread building throughout this. And then, so where did you go to from there? So after I graduated, I went actually into the lab for about a year. So I was a scientist in lab working at a generic pharmaceutical company. But after a very short period of time, 
I realized I loved people way more than the job kind of enabled me because I was having these relationships with these big machines on mm. detecting all of these um, complex mixtures using you know LC mass specs and, and sort of complicated equipment. So I ended up um, finding a way or making a way to head over to the US. So mm. I actually was taken over to the US, California, specifically Los Angeles, to uh, work for a biotech company over there. So there I was able to start to implement my knowledge in technical sales, uh, but working with scientists all around America. So I worked a lot on the East Coast. Uh, I worked with big pharmaceutical companies like Merck and Shering Plow and Hoffman and LaRouche at the time. Uh, and so I was able to work with some of these scientists that were doing some amazing things and things like cancer, biomarkers and uh, drug discovery and things like that, which to me had a bit of a caveat lens. I'm not a big fan of the pharmaceutical industry, but I understand there's a time and a place. But I got to work with some pretty amazing scientists who were also doing what I was doing as a scientist mm. in the lab. So you could speak the language. I could, yeah. yeah. And it was fun because I got to hear all of, the, you know, all of their new research projects, particularly in R&D. And it was just a really beautiful experience. So I was, I was in America for about eight and a half, nine years. I had various roles in that. So I started in technical sales, then um, became an international sales manager. So I worked with distributors in Southeast Asia, Central Asia, Middle East, and Africa, uh, and then took over um, their whole e-learning platform uh, and basically started to train all the other sales reps across the world because what I was doing was growing and, and I was succeeding in my role. So they said, could you please help the rest of the team grow too? And again, that's not a small feat because company that you're working for is like the Google of life science, you know, it was a well-oiled machine, um, a very um, significant company in this, in the space. So yeah, like that, that's, that says it all right there, you know, just making headway in such a Well, that a was big such an advanced company. So they were using business intelligence and insights better than anybody I've ever come across. And that was, that was, you know, a decade ago. Uh, and the fact that they were even looking at that type of advanced, you know, user or customer insight and then reporting on it like they did, like they opened my eyes to how a legit well-oiled engine can work. Uh, and I, I just, I think that really opened my eyes to what a high performing team and company can actually do. Cause yeah, they, they just did some pretty remarkable things for the time. Yeah, Absolutely. And then you came back to lovely old New Zealand. Mm. Um, so, again, there was a bit of, you know, finding your feet when you came back because, you know, oftentimes we talk about New Zealand being three to five years behind. Mm. Um, and I recall there was a period of time where you were just trying to get out the tech industry. Like, <laughs> like the tech industry was not here in New Zealand and you actually mm. had to educate people about what the tech industry yeah. was. So, yeah, tell me about that kind of time period where you kind of came back to New Zealand, trying to find your feet and just a bit confused, I mm. guess. So I left New Zealand because I felt like it wasn't big enough for me. Like uh, tall poppy syndrome, you know, we've heard it a number of times with various other places, um, but tall poppy syndrome is quite prevalent in New Zealand and Australia and is really how if you grow ahead or above all of the other tall, other poppies, the other ones will cut you down. Mm. So I felt that very much so after I graduated and when I was in the workforce, and that's why I really wanted to head over to America because I felt that they were kind of my kind of people. And I'm probably more like an American with my how upfront I am and, and how probably uh, assertive I am than I probably was ever as a Kiwi. But so when I went to the US, it was just such a beautiful experience because I felt like I was home and with, with like-minded high-performing people. So when I came back to New Zealand, uh, I people would ask, what, what, are you, what do you do? And I said, I'm in the tech industry. And they'd be like, the what? And I said, the tech industry. That's crazy to believe now, right? Oh, it is, because we've come so far in the last eight years. And so, but back, back then, people didn't know. They didn't get it. And I spent so much of my own money doing press releases, meeting with media. Like, if you search my name and tech uh, you'll find a bunch of press releases and, and articles that came out during that period because I was just trying so hard to get people to understand, like, there's so much more to the world than livestock and sheep and milk. Um, now, don't get me wrong, we've got some pretty cool things going on here, especially now, but back then it was just like, oh, my gosh, I just went back into the ice ages once I came back from L.A. Uh, but so, so there was definitely 
a passion and drive to try to improve their education. And that led to a variety of opportunities like being elected on the board of NZ Tech Association, um, you know, being a founding uh, member of the Cultivate IT tech cluster in, in the region, and then lots of other sort of governance roles thereafter. Yeah, governance, well, wearable companies, health tech, you know, creating um, health systems. Mm. Um, yeah, so yeah, you've kind of dabbled in a bit of everything, AI, um, GPU acceleration, and then kind of finally in that kind of security space when I, I managed to get you to come across to join me, <laughs> yes. um, which in tailored health and tailored tech. Um, yeah, so what the question is where to go now, because there's honestly so many avenues I want to kind of take this conversation. But I, th- I think the, the key thing now is, you know, you got, you've come through from childhood, you know, you're the underdog, you um, developed in this pool of needing perfection, you know, as a gymnast, you know, needing to hit those tens. Um, then you're kind of coming through as a scientist, uh, creating amazing technologies to help people. And that story's threaded right throughout. So I'd love to really just dive into back to where we were at the start of this um, talk was where we kind of unraveled you, because obviously those things are great, mm. um, what you've been doing, but it's like, it was trying to find who you really were under all of these patterning or um, pressure. Pressure, yeah. Because yeah. you're you're essentially this pressure cooker for your whole life. Like when when we met, I just couldn't believe the level of pressure you not only were ex- externally put on you, but the most importantly, the internal mm. pressure that you put on yourself. At that pressure cooker that you found yourself, what was the real thing that just helped you unravel from that? Mm. So when I had sort of reached what I had at the time felt was a peak in my career, and that's when I you know, engaged with you around how do I become the best version of myself, I started to, as a part of that unbecoming, as a part of that unraveling, I realized that I'd been trying to bend myself into whatever shape or form that society expected from me. And the, the, the companies that I had been working with had been almost uh, an analogy of also my marriage. So I'd been working in you know, heavily male-dominated environments, being in the tech sector, uh, lots of egos involved, uh, hidden communication like almost this tension that was never never spoken about and I would often reveal the tension because I wanted to address it and so I remember being in meetings uh, in one of my companies where I, I people knew me as telling how it is or at least sharing the elephant in the room so we could actually talk about it and that was not welcome um, often and it got to the point that my diplomacy fatigue just started to wane like I just I couldn't keep blatant issues within businesses or companies even all the way up to like shareholder impact quiet I just I couldn't keep doing that and so I started to find my voice and stop trying to be the good little girl the good worker the 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 wicked achiever um despite or in spite of safety or or actual protecting the shareholders or protecting others that were being impacted by this um, the type of toxic behavior that goes on in tech startups specifically. But as, as you kind of alluded to, this wasn't just happening in the work environment, this was happening in the home environment too. Yeah, yeah. So I I tried so hard to be the dutiful wife. And I, and I say that almost with a bit of a laugh because it's not like I was a stay-at-home mom. I was still very career-oriented. I love having work. I love having a purpose. And I also love... having a family and children and having a a partner, the idea of a a partner that I can share my life with. But what I felt was there was so much of myself that I was swallowing both at home and in business. And so the, the parallels of me trying to be this dutiful, perfect person, um, being there for everyone else first, um, while still trying to be a career woman and just nailing my my desired um, vocation, it was just at the absolute expense of my whole self. Yep. 
And uh, what I what I was also going through in in the relationship space was was also a lot of sexual trauma, a lot of sexual swallowing. Um, I had a lot of transactional elements to to that relationship on a sexual nature, and I think it's so important for us to cover that on a different episode. Yeah. And so, again, to realize that you're swallowing yourself consistently to show up in a world that expects you to look like this was just eating at me. And it was almost like the alter ego that sticks up for everyone else realized I wasn't sticking up for myself. And so what, what amounted when I met you was a whole bunch of saying no. So I'm no longer going to tolerate certain behaviors. I'm no longer going to show up in a way other people think and expect me to. And I'm finally going to say yes to who I am and not apologize for that. Yeah. And I think at that point in time, that's where I got you to clearly outline boundaries mm. and something we'll definitely go into in future episodes. And I, I don't want to detract from this because this is a, this, what we're going to now is a massive unraveling that we will have to dive into in future episodes. But yeah, you became really clear on your boundaries and because yeah, I was seeing it time time again, both in work and at home, um, as we started to come um, romantically involved, and uh, just the the levels you were going to over and above for your kids at the cost of your own self. Which obviously, as a mother, that is what you do to an extent, but this was on a whole whole new level. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, we'll get into that at, at a future time. Um, so. The, so you've had a lot of kind of aha moments throughout that period of time. So the big thing was, you know, that kind of pressure cooker, you're trying to really unravel and um, find your voice again. And was there any other lessons alongside that that you found really powerful? Or um... mm. What's been interesting is reflecting upon not only my own behavior. Uh, so, again, I'm not, I'm not putting any blame wholly to to the people I worked with or the the people I chose to have in my life but it's also around what I chose to accept even though I probably shouldn't have but I I think what has been an undercurrent if I reflect upon all of my life is I've been a bit of an outlier in many respects like I was the young girl with binoculars looking at birds when I was like six on the trampoline or getting dad's microscope and looking at things or timing ads on and commercials to see if you know the ads the category and the duration of ads differed between children's programming and adult programming like from a very early age I realized I was probably just a little bit different all the way up to documenting my my sister's hormonal moods in my little notebook so I've always been a bit of a scientist and a little bit different um, in the way that I, I look at things and so what I think I've realized is I need to be okay that I don't fit in the standard pattern, the, the, the standard mold, if you'd like to call it a standard mold. And that for most part, I actually need to be out on my own, in my own business, trying to be the change I want to see in the world. Because I know that the way that current corporate world works and the way that many toxic environments are curated, that I just I've got no more tolerance for that. And as a result, I just, I don't want to be in that space. I don't want to work for other people, other, excuse the, you know, other men that, that get to their position because they have, they want power or ego and don't have the right values, which there are plenty of those. Mm. Um, and, and women as well, but I think I'm just sick of that, that, paradigm yeah and so I want to be something different in that space and I have to be okay with that yeah and then running your own business as you've kind of come to learn is especially with the kind of global pandemics you know being a business owner is is not easy right it really isn't but you also want to live a life by design a life full of purpose and it's really hard to do that when you're kind of in these confines of other people's expectations over you so Again, I think that's another big part behind your story is you're really trying to embody that life. Um, and, you know, that's the, the tailored life. That's what we're here to talk about, right? Mm. There are so many things that could be done by more people that would change the game for them. Yeah, simple and th- things, right? that's been the frustrating part. Like I wasn't necessarily expecting to be thrust back into kind of 
client work, you know, with the genetic counseling that we do, the, the clinical diagnostics, which I love because I'm, I'm back using my biochemistry and toxicology and genetics again. But to start seeing so many people get aha moments, like we just had our mums here. We, we finally paid for them to have the clinical genetics being done and just sitting with them on the weekend and like their, their faces lighting up around now I get it. The fact that that's not available or, or people either I don't know about it um, is we're right back to where I was in gymnastics. Like yeah. people are literally training their lives in a church with no clue that if they have the right coach at the right level who can see a bigger horizon that they're on, they could become unstoppable. Yeah, I don't think I could wrap this episode up any better than that, but I think you've really just nailed it. We, we just need to look deeper because um, everyone is just on default. Mm, they really are. And we just need to unplug that default mode, throw that away, and really start analyzing and really just refining our lives so we can live a life by design. The cool part of this is everyone's got a story and what all we can do is not only share the pit stops in our story that created aha moments, but the fact that you've got in us collectively decades worth of clinical or like case studies around how things have been turned around by some of these not so common sense elements and activities um, is what we ultimately want people to learn from. And yeah. this is, this is fundamentally so our friends and families can live better and longer and, uh, and have a life by design and hopefully the rest of the world and anybody who finds us can enjoy it too. Just get curious. That's mm. pretty much all we're trying to get is get people actually just curiosity of their body, what mm. we call bio-curiosity. Um, because, yeah, it's so easy just to go through the motions. Mm. But that's not a life I want to live and it's not a life I recommend anybody should live because you get one life, may as well enjoy it. Yeah, nice to done. Right. We hope you enjoyed this episode. In the following episodes, we'll start to dig deeper into the themes and topics we've discussed in Luke and Rachel's origin stories, including client case studies and how we've used advanced science and not-so-common sense to help them live a life more extraordinary. Like, share, follow and subscribe to get notified of new episode drops and to support our mission to make the path to vibrant well-being less lonely and confusing.